Jonah chapter 1. And we're looking at verse 17, and we're reading on into chapter 2, the first 10 verses of chapter 2. In fact, in the, in the Hebrew writings, verse 17 is considered part of chapter 2. Uh, but we have broken this into chapter. The chapter verse formation came many years after the, uh, the, the initial writings. And so uh, sometimes there's a little discrepancy in how those chapters and verses break down. But verse 17 is really very much a part of this next portion that we're going to look at in chapter 2 today. Would you say this together with me? The unstoppable chase of God's grace. Say it. The unstoppable chase of God's grace. Say it again. The unstoppable chase of God's grace. Jonah 1, chapter 1 and verse 17 we begin there. If you don't have a Bible, listen close. If you're sitting near someone that you notice they don't have a Bible, share it, offer to share yours with them, if you will. If you need a Bible, talk to us. We'd be glad to give you one. Jonah 1 and verse 17. And the Lord, here we come now to the, the most infamous part of this book. You know, as we've all come to know it, Jonah and the whale. It wasn't really a whale. It, it was referred to as a great fish or a fish. What happened was, is in the translation in the New Testament, um, it, it, the, the closest equivalent word that the New Testament could give to it was a word that happens to translate into whale. It really wasn't a whale. It was a great fish of some sort. We don't know exactly what kind of fish. There's been a lot of argument and controversy around what kind of fish it was, if it, it was, if it was even a fish that existed. But that's all besides the point. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. We kind of move into a bit of a poetic mode now. It, this, is, it, this is like reading the Psalms, these next few verses. I called out to the Lord in my, in my distress, and he answered me out of the belly of Sheol, the, the lowest parts of the earth. I cried, and you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Do you recognize that phrase at all? It, it's also in Psalm 42. There's a duplicate of this statement in Psalm 42. It, it's probably likely that Jonah was very familiar with the Psalms because it was a part of their worship. All the waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. You're getting the picture of Jonah here. Seaweed wrapped around his head. 
all this stuff going on. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought me up, my life from the pit. O Lord my God, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Pretty graphic language used there in that last verse, verse 10 of chapter 2. Deliberately graphic language. God wanted to make it clear to us as we read the narrative of this story that Jonah was, was, he was in such a condition and such a status of relationship with God that even the fish could not stomach him. So he vomited him up. How many know that's pretty serious indigestion going on there? Hello? Three days and three nights. You don't want that kind of indigestion going on uh, in terms of spiritual relationship with the Lord. So here we see uh, this famous part of the story. The Lord appoints a great fish. And Jonah, as he's falling to the depths of the earth through the waters, this fish swallows him up, perhaps intended to take Jonah to its, his death, but then we see the great redemptive grace, the unstoppable chasing of God's grace happening. Even though Jonah hasn't actually fully repented yet, God is seeking to draw him back to himself. And he appoints this fish in a redemptive fashion to do so. And in gratitude for this, Jonah celebrates his rescue in this prayer, in this psalm, if you will, of thanksgiving that he composes. Where is it that we find God's grace? This, this unstoppable grace that is chasing us all the time. Where is it that we find it? Here now in the story, it's not look so hard. Please don't get hung up in, in this. It's interesting that that. Only one verse really is given to this fish. There's not a whole lot said about the fish. The point is not the fish. That's the point that God is trying. It's not the fish. There's a greater point here. But over the years, as, scholar, as scholars have argued about this, did it really exist? Could it, how did Jonah survive? Could Jonah survive? And, and all this debate and controversy that goes on about this it's really missing the point of the whole story. So let's not get so caught up in this great fish that we miss and fail to see our great God and His purpose in the story. We must not succumb, beloved, to the paralysis of analysis here in the questions of whether there actually existed such a large fish. And I hesitated even to take time to even touch on this because like, that's how much it's not really part of the whole point of the story. But I know it is something that we ask. It's a question that's in our minds. And so I'm going to 
give it just a, a quick snapshot here, but not going to spend a whole lot of time. I've already touched on this a little bit earlier as we introduced this series. But let's, let me just say, let's not get caught up on this paralysis of analysis of wh- whether, whether the fish really existed. How, whether, could, could a man, could Jonah live in such a fish for three days in its belly? These things, again, are really irrelevant to the author's purpose and intent in the message of the story. So I don't want us to spend a whole lot of time quibbling about this. I will simply say this much. As believing Christ followers, we do not need science or archaeology to verify whether or not such a fish existed. Now, listen, if you know me at all, you know that I am not against science and I'm not against archaeology. I'm fascinated by both those fields of study. And in fact, they serve to complement our study of the Scriptures very well. But what I'm saying is we need to keep things in proper order. We don't need science and archaeology to verify for us whether such a fish existed, whether Jonah uh, could live for three days. Nothing against these worthy fields of study of which we benefit significantly But my point is this, we have something greater than science or archaeology, as great as those fields are. And the Bible does not oppose science and archaeology. And though we live in a day where science and the Bible have been pitted against each other, science and the Bible, if you really read the Bible the way it's meant to be read, the Bible does not speak against science. The Bible is not meant even to argue against science. Books like Genesis are not meant to be scientific arguments. We've made them into that, and in so doing, we failed to see the message that God was seeking to bring to us. But we have something greater than even science and archaeology. What could be the single greatest contribution, in fact, of the Reformation? And that is the biblical doctrine of internal witness of the Holy Spirit that persuades us that the miracle of this great fish swallowing and holding Jonah did indeed occur. Now, of course, we bring that internal witness of the Spirit into submission to the Scriptures. The Scriptures are our rule and guide to verify whether that internal witness is correct or not, or it's something off the wall. But it doesn't take away from the fact that the Holy Spirit guides us in this way. As we read the Word, we read the Word understanding that there must be a marriage between the Holy Spirit and the Word, the Scriptures. How many hear me? You understand where I'm coming from? We need both. When we read the Scriptures, We do so studiously and as students of the Word, but we do so as Spirit-filled people as well that say, Holy Spirit, would you illuminate this to me and help me to understand it as you have intended for me to understand it? And would you bring personal application of it into my life? So we have the internal witness of the Holy Spirit. The underlying problem 
proving Jonah and the great fish to be an obstacle to many as regards to its historicity and its 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 it's it's the narrative like it, it's this was this actually a, a historic event that happened or is this just something that is being made up to embellish the story the problem is something that really juices down to this for us and that is an unwillingness to concede the possibility of the miraculous of God acting in His creation, of God shaping its destiny. The miraculous is taken in many minds to be synonymous with non-historical or non-real. And such an approach, beloved, is antagonistic to to the veracity and to the integrity of Scripture where there is no hesitation in ascribing such, such governance to God, where, where the, the Scriptures just matter-of-factly ascribe to God the, this greatness and governance to be able to appoint a great fish. And He has the power and the means to do so. He is Lord over creation. The Lord is the one who appoints. The Lord is the one who determines as He sees fit. And so in this case, He saw fit to appoint a fish, a great fish. And the author felt no point in going into all the details about the fish. The story is not about the fish. The story is about Jonah. And more than that, the story is about God. And God's redemptive, unstoppable, relentless, chasing grace. How many are tracking with me? So let's let's not get all wrapped up in in the fish and and all of the arguments around around that. And in so doing, miss the point, and alter and diminish the purpose and intent and the message of the story, because beloved. Even if, think about this, will you? Even if it didn't actually literally occur. Just for sake of momentary argument. Even if it didn't actually literally occur, this great fish. Does it really matter? It does not diminish from the story. It does not diminish from God's purpose and intent the author's purpose and intent of the story, which is a story of God's grace and His greatness and His redemptive intention. How many are tracking with me? So whether or not the fish literally existed, I believe it did, and there are good grounds to believe it did, but whether it did or not, it doesn't alter the story at all, the message of the story. Are you, are you hearing me this morning? If you're if you're understanding where I'm coming from, show some sign of life, nod, wink, yawn, do something. I don't want you to get to miss this. The message of the story of Jonah is greater than this one mention of the fish, is what I'm trying to say. Thank you, Philip. (laughs) 
The greater question really for us as we read this story, the greater question than, than whether, you know, the, the plausible existence of this fish or the survival of Jonah in its belly, the greater question is this. And by the way, Jesus believed that this actually happened. Jesus references Jonah and this great fish. He compares himself to it, in fact, in Matthew 12 and verse 40. So if that's not enough of verification for you, then I really don't know what is. But the greater question is this. Of what is this fish a sign for us? What is this fish representing? That's the real question. The fish stands for the surprising chase of God's unstoppable, amazing, delivering grace. His salvation. Turn to somebody and say, that's a good fish story. Just go tell them that. That, that is a good fish. That's the best, I'm going to tell you, the best fish story you'll ever hear. And it's true. Beloved, God does not deal harshly with us. God does not punish us according to our sins as we deserve. Hello? How many are grateful for that? Where would we be? Who of us would be here? Who would stand if God dealt with us according to our sins? God does not deal with us according to our sins as we deserve. God does not get even with us. Even before Jonah repents, he's appointing this fish to save him. Though Jonah wanted to die, and Jonah, in Jonah's mind, he's, he's hoping that as he's thrown overboard, it'll lead to his death because then he can say to God, there, God, take that. This is what justice should look like. When a person disobeys, they should be put to death. I'm going to show you what justice looks like. And God says, I'm not biting. I'm not biting. I'm not going to bite that hook, Jonah. I'm going to show you what justice in my books looks like. And he appoints this fish to save Jonah. He does not deal with us according to our sins as we deserve. Hallelujah. I mean, that ought to generate in us today at least a quiet hallelujah. If not a loud one, who of us would stand? God does not get even. God got even through the work and victory of the cross of Christ. His justice was willingly, lovingly, sacrificially satisfied there, Isaiah tells us. The Father looked at His Son who willingly gave Himself. This was not a picture of an abusive, angry Father beating on His Son. This was a picture of divine love of which we cannot even really fully comprehend, of a willing Son giving of Himself, God Himself giving Himself as the penalty for sin. His own penalty for sin. It, we can't even fully comprehend the mystery of the good news. That's where God got even. 
as he became his own penalty for sin. Such incredible grace. Incredible grace. That grace chases us and pursues us constantly. You, me, his grace, his unstoppable grace is always chasing us. Hello? That's the God. This is the biblical picture of who God is, his nature. It's not one of some angry, ugly, wrathful God who's always standing on the edge of his throne with a, with a, 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 a club raised, ready to beat and pour out judgment the first moment he gets opportunity, though, though that is often the picture that we have depicted of him as evangelical Christ followers. That is not who he is. He is always chasing us first with grace and mercy. Often the judgment that things come to is really more due to our own choices and decisions and the wages that we bring on ourselves. The wages of our sin is what? Death. We bring those things on ourselves. We like to blame God. Well, there's God, you know, that old angry guy in the sky, ready to beat anybody. No, it has nothing. It, it's wages that we bring on ourselves. God is always first chasing us with grace and mercy. But we choose how we will respond to Him. Jonah chose to run. As we sang earlier, Jonah found this out. We can't run from God. His unstoppable grace, incredible grace, chases us, pursues us. It seeks to capture us and deliver us and chasten us and, yes, discipline us, but renew us and transform us and empower us and sustain us. His grace and mercy that chases us continually. The chase of God's amazing grace. So the story here reveals to us that God appointed, and this is a key word, He appointed. Everybody say appointed. He appointed. He didn't just randomly, you know, select a fish, or there didn't just happen to be a fish going by that day. And No, He appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And this verb, appointed, it's a key term in the book. We're going to see it again later on in Jonah. It, it, it's used again in chapter 4, verses 6, 7, and 8 to convey the idea of the determinative intentionality and the sovereign governance that the Lord has over every aspect of the created realm. He is sovereign over it all. A related word to this word appointed is used in Psalm 147. Psalm 147. I, in fact, I think we have it on the screen. Would you read it together with me nice and loud? Fill the room again with the Word of God. He determines. There it is right there. He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. Isn't that awesome? Our God. 
He's given all the stars their names. Before the field of astronomy started identifying and naming all of these, these constellations, God already had given them all names. So again, there's no reason for us to really legitimately question the existence reality of such a creature of this, as this great fish, or to suppose that the Lord uh, perhaps created some new special animal that never existed before to rescue Jonah. There's really no point to that. Rather, he so determined and directed one of his creatures that it was in the right place at the right time and served in the specific way that he required. How many know God can do things like that? In your life and mine, he does things like that. Many of us in this room can share stories and testimony of times where he did things like that for us. The miracle is the exercise of the power that the Lord alone can command. His sovereignty lies in His sufficiency over all. In each case here for us in the book of Jonah, as we study this story, God arranged and orchestrated a circumstance in history to teach Jonah something he desperately needed to know. That's how much he loved Jonah. That's how much he loves you and me. He goes to those lengths to orchestrate and arrange and appoint and determine and destine things in order to bring to us everything we need as his sons and daughters. In Jonah's case, this was a lesson that he desperately needed to learn. Serving even to lovingly chasten Jonah and bring discipline to him. That's discipleship. Do you know what it is to be a disciple of Jesus? It's to be those who are disciplined by him. We are giving our lives to the disciplines of the Lord, the disciplines of the Holy Spirit, as we recently looked at at length in our series of People of the Spirit, Pneumaticos. As Christ followers, this is who we are. We, we d- please don't characterize discipline in, in a negative light. God disciplines. He chastens. And He does so with loving purpose, with mercy and grace for our greatest and highest good. As painful and as uncomfortable and as, as much as we may not like it, at the time. This for Jonah was a divine assignment that God had given to prepare and to teach and to reveal to Jonah. And in in our experiences, He creates for us sovereignly divine assignments that He gives us as His followers, assignments that He appoints and and destined that we might be taught by Him and learn from Him and discover His heart and His ways. For us, 
we've just stepped into the year 2020, and there's all kinds of things that are being drawn from that, you know, 2020 vision and all of these things and wonderful and truthful things. But how many know this, too, that hindsight is 2020? Hindsight is 2020. We often see things better after the fact than we did before or in the midst of it. Hindsight is 2020, and we can see that often, how many know this to be true? Often, the most important lessons that we have learned in life are the result of God's severe mercies and loving chastening. But we didn't see it at the time. At the time, maybe we grumbled, we whined, we complained, we murmured, but after the fact, looking back, hindsight, 2020, it, we realized that some of the greatest lessons we've learned were in those times. Hello? How many are, you get this, you're see, you're, you've been, hello, anybody, I'm feeling all alone up here, like I'm the only one that learns this way. Oh, no, Pastor, we've all got it figured out beforehand. We don't know why you're not getting it. They are events in our lives, experiences that were difficult, even excruciating. Some of you are in them right now. And at, and at the time, we, we just... We thought, how we can't take this anymore. This is brutal. How am I going to, I don't know if I can live through another, at the time. But later, we came to see how these things yielded more good in our lives than we could have ever foreseen. Some of the greatest lessons I've learned in life and living, I've learned through the brutal, hot, fiery furnace of excruciating experiences and failures and mistakes. Hello? How many of you are there? You've been there. You know what I'm talking about. Anybody? Good. Three people. That's great. The rest of you have it all figured out. We're just too thick and dense to learn. I don't know. Where did... The great fish here in the story is a perfect example of such a severe mercy of the Lord. Obviously, the fish saved Jonah's life by swallowing him. But on the other hand, let's not forget, Jonah was still in a watery prison. I mean... Yes, we're seeing God's mercy, but how many of you would like to spend three days and nights in the belly of a fish? Hello? Some of you don't even like the smell of fish. Maybe not many. We have, we have great Asian culture in the room, so that may not apply. But some of you, we don't, you know, I, I like, uh, you, may, you, know, you may be of the, the, the standpoint, I like to eat it, I enjoy the taste of it, but I don't want to smell it. it, it Three days and three nights. So he's still in this watery prison. It's the mercy and grace of God that's unstoppable, but it's severe too. 
He's still sinking to the bottom of the world, to the roots of the mountains, as he says in 2 verse 6. Far from help, far from hope, he was still alive, but for how long? I mean, how long can a person live in the belly of a fish? It was only a temporary respite unless God provided another act of deliverance. Beloved, when we, when we reject and when we rebel and when we disobey God, as Jonah did, it takes radical treatment. if it's to be remedied. Radical treatment. Notice again, the text has been depicting Jonah as descending. Not ascending, but descending. Going down to Joppa, down into the ship, down into the depths of the ship, and now finally he goes even further down into the very depths of the ocean. Sheol, it's often called in the Older Testament, the place of the dead and the departed. It's often referenced as hell. It, it, it's the deepest. He's down, 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 down. But not until he was all the way down, finally stripped of his own buoyant, self-righteous sufficiency, was deliverance possible for Jonah. You see, there was a fatal flaw in Jonah's character. And it had lain hidden from him as long as his life was going well. Jonah didn't see it. It was only through complete failure that he could begin to see it and move towards changing it by God's grace. This principle works itself out at multiple levels for us. How many know that much of what we learn in life is built not upon our successes, but our failures? Can, can we get honest with ourselves, with each other, with God in the room today? Most of what we learn in life, not everything, not always, but most of what we learn in life is built upon our failures. Hello? That's been my story. Jacob, and, and we're in good company. I mean, we just look, look at some of our biblical ancestors. Jacob was not prepared to lead the family of God until he had been forced to flee from his home and experienced years of mistreatment at the hands of his father-in-law and faced what he thought was a violent encounter with his aggrieved brother Esau. It was only then that Jacob met God face to face in Genesis 32. Only then, when he'd hit rock bottom. Con consider other faith family members and ancestors of ours. Abraham. Joseph, David, Elijah, and Peter. 
to name a few, all of these powerful leaders became powerful leaders in God's kingdom through failure and suffering. Not because they had a wall full of trophies and great accolades and God said, wow, look at that, I'm impressed. I want them on my team. No, it was through their failures, through their blunders, through blowing it, through falling flat on their face, through hitting rock bottom. And God says, now I can work with you. And I'm so grateful because I qualify. How about you? If Jonah was to begin finally to ascend, both in the water and in faith, he had to be brought to the very end of himself. How many of us can attest to this same experience? It's only when you reach the end of yourself, the very bottom, down, 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 the very bottom, when everything falls apart, when all your schemes and all your strategies and all your resources are broken and depleted and exhausted, and you're broke and you're busted and you're disgusted, only, only that, that you are finally open to learn how to completely depend on God. As is often said, you never realize that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. Hello? Jesus put it this way in Matthew 10 and verse 39. You must lose your life in order to find it. Jonah's a picture of this. If Jonah was to begin finally to ascend, both in the water and in faith, he had to be brought to the very end of himself. And it's no different, beloved, for you or me. We cannot effectively and faithfully and truthfully walk with God if we're full of ourselves. This isn't a case to become doormats or to beat ourselves up or to, to be down on ourselves. It, it, it's just simply to say that God seeks to bring us to the end of our own abilities and resources and all of these things that we've come to depend. You say, well, God gave me those gifts. Yes, He did, but He gave them to us not so that we would elevate them and worship them and idolize them above the giver of those gifts, but He comes to bring everything into proper order and perspective. And so He brings us to the very end of all these things so that He can then redeem and raise us up the way we are meant to live in Him and in these things that He's given us. Are you tracking with me? This is what we're seeing in Jonah. The way up was first of all the way down. The path of downward mobility. We live in a world of upward mobility. Climbing the ladder. Getting to the top. 
when we walk in the kingdom, we follow the path of downward mobility. Everything's turned on its head. The usual place to learn the greater secrets of God's grace is at the bottom. I'll say it again. The usual place to learn the greater secrets of God's grace is at the bottom. But it is not simply being at the bottom that begins to change Jonah, but prayer at the bottom. So now the action of the story is about to come to a full halt. To leave Jonah alone with his God. God gets Jonah alone with him. And he does it however he has to. In Jonah's case, it was in the belly of a fish. I don't know what your fish is. I know what my fish has been over the years. Different forms. God gets us alone with Him to where we have nothing else to lean on or support ourselves on and we can only look up to Him. Jonah begins to pray 